Chapter 24 of Ashton Kirk, Investigator, by John Thomas McIntyre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pete Milan. Chapter 24 The Second Night. The second night of the vigil in Hume's rooms wore on. Unlike the preceding one, the two young men were almost entirely silent. When they did speak, it was in tones so low as to be scarcely above a whisper. There was a taut, indefinable something in the air that kept the desire for sleep from both. In the brooding darkness they were alert, watchful, expectant. The tobacco-loving Pendleton afterwards recalled with surprise that not once did he think of the weed. But when the queer, mysterious night sounds began to come, those creaking of loose planks, strainings of unseen timbers, and untraceable snappings in the walls that are common in old houses, he frequently thought of the automatic revolver, and the chill of the polished metal always felt comforting enough. The clocks announced the ends of the hours according to their temperaments. Coming in the midst of the total silence, the din seemed to Pendleton to be terrific. He pictured appalled criminals on their way through the dark halls, crouching in fear at the sounds. Eleven o'clock struck, and then twelve with its continued uproar. It seemed a long time before one and then two sounded. Pendleton's limbs were beginning to feel loggy and numb because of the chill and the continued inaction. He had ventured to stir them a little and was wrapping the heavy blanket more closely about himself when he felt Ashton Kirk's hand upon his shoulder. Hush, said the investigator in a whisper. Instantly, Pendleton was motionless. He listened intently. The silence of the place seemed complete. "'What is it?' he finally ventured to breathe. The hand upon his shoulder tightened warningly, but there came no other reply. Again Pendleton listened. The door of the showroom stood open. Ashton Kirk had placed it so in order that they might catch any sound that came from the hall. All the other doors leading into the hall from Hume's apartments were securely locked. Anyone who ventured into the suite must first pass through the showroom, where the two waited and watched. After a space, Pendleton's attention was rewarded. A faint, far-off rustling came to him. Somehow it gave him the impression of hesitation, non-assurance timidity. He was speculating upon the queerness of this impression when there came a faint, momentary glow from the hall. Mysterious, phosphorescent, unreal. And then it vanished. Both young men were huddled upon the sofa, which was placed facing the open door. A huge Spanish screen was drawn before them. 
but the black leather was cracked in places, and through these they had a clear view of the hall. A moment later the glow appeared once more, but this time it was brighter. "'Someone is on the stairs,' reasoned Pendleton, his hand going to his revolver. "'It looks as though he were lighting matches to show the way.' Between the sputters of light were spaces of darkness. These were filled in by the faint guarded rustling. But as the light upon each appearance grew brighter, so did the sound become more distinct. And at length, a light resonance, unmistakably a footstep, came from the hall. Then, steadily, softly, the sound came on through the darkness. Nearer and nearer it drew, until at length it became unmistakable. The rustling was that of a woman's skirts. Then, so it seemed, the darkness of the doorway grew denser. The soft, quick breathing of the newcomer became audible. Her hands were heard moving over the door frame as she blindly searched for the door. Then, apparently, she learned that the door was open. A deeper breath showed the relief she felt at this. Now she carefully entered the room. Even before Pendleton's brain realized who it must be, he began to feel a tightening at his heart. And now, as he pictured her advancing with outstretched, groping hands into the darkened room, a room horrible with crime and secret dread. It was all that he could do to hold himself in check. He had almost an overmastering desire to spring up, to cry out to her, to tell her not to fear. He was still struggling with this feeling when he became aware that she had paused, and also that Ashton Kirk was once more gripping his shoulder with a warning hand. Becoming instantly alert, his senses perceived a stoppage of everything. The clocks seemed to tick more faintly. He could no longer hear the woman breathe. There was an instant that roared with silence. Then came the soft, steady padding of feet descending the stair. Then he heard the girl release her breath in a great, trembling exhalation. The rustle of skirts came quick and sharp in the darkness. He heard the door through which she had entered the room squeak upon its hinges, and then close with a click that proclaimed it fast. After this, there was a long pause. Pendleton could hear the faint breathing of the girl and thought it rather odd that she did not catch the sound of his own. He pictured her leaning against the locked door, her heart throbbing with fear as she listened to the descending footsteps. Stronger and stronger grew his desire to leap up and assure her that friends were at hand. But at the same time, the warning grip of his companion, who seemed to feel what was in his mind, also grew stronger and stronger. With the closing of the door, 
the sounds from the stairs had ceased to reach them. There was a long pause. Pendleton, during this, grew sensible of a long, wavering mental antenna which he projected into the shadows. And its delicate sensitiveness told him of the silent approach of a fearful thing. A long, long time, it seemed to him. But in reality, it was remarkably brief. Then the steps were heard, shuffling and secret, in the hall and very near at hand. A soft, uncertain touch fell upon the smooth glass of the door. Down its length the inquiring fingers traveled. Then the handle was tried, held a moment, and quietly released. The steps then receded lightly down the hall. For some moments all was quiet. Then there came the scratch of a match from the hall, and its accompanying flare seen through the glass of the door. A little space more, and a rending sound came to their ears, followed by the falling of some metallic objects upon the floor. Pendleton required no explanation of these sounds. It was plain that the second intruder had come prepared, and had forced one of the doors. All the communicating doors of the suite had been left open. Through them came the pushing about of furniture and the drawing down of blinds. Then another match flared, followed by a stronger and steadier light, which showed that the second visitor had lighted the gas. The light filtered palely through the various rooms into the one in which the two men and the woman were hidden. By means of this, the former could make out the letter in a dim, uncertain sort of way. She seemed unusually tall as she moved noiselessly across the floor and peered cautiously through the communicating doorways. What she saw must have startled her, for she drew quickly back, her hand pressed to her heart. Then, softly, she retraced her steps. They heard the door catch slip quietly back and were conscious that the door was swung open. The woman then crept, inch by inch so it seemed, down the hall. It was the bedroom door that had been forced. The two watchers noted the bar of light that slanted from it across the passage. Nearer and nearer the woman approached to it. Pendleton had at first thought that she was making for the stairs, but this died away as she passed them unheeding. The automatic revolver was in his hand instantly. Leaning toward his friend, he breathed in his ear. She's going in there. The blanket slipped from him as he arose to his feet. His legs were still cramped and stiffened. He felt clumsy and unsure. Ashton Kirk evidently agreed that the time had come for action, for he whispered in reply, Through the rooms, 
I will take the hall. Pendleton stepped from behind the screen like a shadow. Through the door leading to the storeroom, he had an uninterrupted view of a part of the bedroom. And across the floor he saw thrown the shadow of a man. Noiselessly he tiptoed into the kitchen, the revolver held ready. Just outside the bedroom he paused, and drawing to one side, waited. Then he noted the shadow move slightly, and heard a deep, rumbling voice say in French, You are a devil. Even now, as I look at you, you laugh and jibe. The shadow upon the floor here swung its arms threateningly. But laugh away. I have won, and it is my turn to laugh. Here, the shadow slid along and up the wall. Peering around the edge of the door, Pendleton saw a man with massive, stooped shoulders and a great square head, covered with thick iron-gray hair. And instantly he recognized him as the man whom they had seen that night in the doorway of Locke's workshop. The stranger was standing just under the portrait of Hume. He gazed up at it, and his big shoulders shook with laughter. "'What a mistake to make,' he said, still in French. "'How was I to know that the old devil once called himself Wayne?' He reached up and took the picture from its hook. With thick, powerful fingers he tore the backing away, and a flat, compact bundle of papers was disclosed. The picture was thrown upon the bed, and the man stood staring at the papers, a wide smile upon his face. So this is the secret, eh? Well, Locke will pay well for it, and it will be worth all the risks I've taken. He was fumbling with a coat pocket as though to stow them away, when there came a swift, light rush. The packet was torn from his hands, and Edith Vale was darting toward the hall door and the stairway beyond. But despite his bulk, the man with the stooped shoulders proved himself singularly swift. In two leaps, he had overtaken her. Dragging her back to the center of the room, he snatched the packet from her in turn. Regarding her with calm, pitiless eyes, he said in English, I am sorry, miss, that you have come, eh? It makes it much harder for me. And I am of the kind that would rather be off quietly, is it not? And say no words to no one. Edith Vale, pale of face, but with steady eye, returned his look. What are you going to do? she asked. I am sorry to do anything, spoke the stranger. I do not know you, and you will understand, will you not, that I can't leave you behind to talk. As he spoke, a flashing something appeared from the girl's pocket. He lifted one huge paw to beat her down. But a clenched hand, protected by a corded buckskin glove, thudded against his jaw. 
his knees weakened, and he sprawled upon the floor. Jimmy! gasped Edith Vale. Jimmy Pendleton! Oh, Edith! Edith! was all the man could say. He slipped his arm around her, for she was tottering, and as he helped her to a chair, Ashton Kirk quietly entered at the hall door. Miss Vale, said he, good evening. Without waiting to note if she even gave him a look, he bent over the fallen man and snapped a pair of handcuffs upon his wrists. A very pretty blow, Pen, said he admiringly. Beautifully timed, and your judgment of distance was excellent. He slipped the fallen papers into his pocket and continued. Keep an eye on him for a moment. Then he stepped swiftly through the hall. A moment later they heard him throw up one of the windows overlooking the street, and a whistle shrilled through the night. Paulson is on duty, said the investigator, returning. He'll be here in a jiffy. Sure enough, they soon heard heavy steps upon the stairs. And then Paulson and a fellow patrolman appeared in the doorway. Astonished, the policeman gazed at Ashton Kirk, who nodded to them smilingly. Then they turned their gaze upon Pendleton, who was speaking soothing words to the white-faced girl, who, now that the danger was over, clung to him tremblingly. But when their eyes centered upon the manacled stranger who was then dazedly struggling to a sitting position, Paulson asked, Who is this? This, answered Ashton Kirk, is Monsieur Segon, a fellow lodger of Antonio Spatola, formerly a very close friend of the late Mr. Hume, and once a resident of Bayonne, in France. End of chapter 24